Vietnam's plans to mandate identity verification on social media platforms, a defamation lawsuit against a Malaysian prime minister, and elections in Timor-Leste. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Karen Lee, and today is May 18th, 2023. On today's show... If Pita's efforts to form a government don't succeed, and in the beginning, an alternative coalition that doesn't include the Move Forward Party, I think that's when we might actually get to see some street protests, some vocal demands from Move Forward supporters that this doesn't reflect the democratic will of the people. And that's when things will get even messier, I think. That was Ken Lohatepanon on what could happen if the Move Forward Party is unable to form a coalition government in the next 60 days. Stay tuned as we unpack their historic win. First, though, the headlines. I'm always super excited to welcome our guests to the studio, but today I am truly honored to host a stalwart of the DC Asia policy community and a wonderful mentor of mine, Alden Hartopo. Alden is a former intern with the CSIS Southeast Asia program from many generations ago, and he has been all over DC since then. Alden, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Karen. So I know you've worn many hats in D.C., one of which is as the administrator of the D.C. Asia Policy Network for Young Professionals in the City, which now has almost 3,000 members on Facebook. Is that right? What's your favorite part of helping lead this group and how has it evolved since you joined the organizing team in 2019? Yeah. One of the things I'm most excited about is the impact of the community we're building and shaping the next generation of relationships among Asia policy watchers in D.C. You know, I think a great example of this was our event at the Malaysian Ambassador Residence a few years back. We brought in 100 professionals to get to know folks at the embassy, and many of them didn't know about Malaysia, but certainly left the gathering knowing more about the country and remarking about how they would love to now visit and learn more. And just real quick to your second question, Karen, our group is only growing, and we're proud to be the largest group for professionals focusing on Asia policy here in the nation's capital. And we're excited to build on more programming in the year and years ahead. And to all the listeners, if you want to learn more, you can visit our website at dcasiapolicy.com. Well, thank you so much for that very comprehensive pitch. Um, I'm very glad to be a member of the community, and so thank you for all the work that you put into running it. Jumping into our headlines, let's start with digital policy in Southeast Asia. Alden, what's been going on in Vietnam? So Vietnam recently announced a plan that would require social media users on all local and foreign platforms to verify their identities. This new regulation is part of an upcoming amendment to the country's telecommunications law, which is expected to take effect later this year. According to the government, the move will help combat online scams and other cybercrime. After its introduction, social media platforms require both groups and individuals to confirm their identities when registering for an account. What does this mean for ordinary Vietnamese users and organizations who own anonymous accounts, Karen? According to state media, authorities would be able to not only monitor, but also block anonymous accounts. The law is only the latest in a series of restrictions imposed on social media users in Vietnam. Last November, the Ministry of Information and Communications shortened the period in which social media platforms were required to take down fake news from 48 hours to 24 hours, raising concerns that this would increase the government's power to crack down on political distance. However, Vietnam could have a legitimate rationale in combating cybercrime. Given the growth of digital banking and non-cash payments, Vietnamese users have become increasingly vulnerable to financial crime, and Vietnam has one of the highest rates of online fraud in Asia. The country also suffered from the third highest incidence of cyber attacks in Southeast Asia last year, after Thailand and Indonesia. It'd be interesting to monitor the law over time and assess whether the removal of anonymity would reduce cybercrimes or simply mark a further setback to freedom of expression. On to our next news story. Former Malaysian leader Mahathir Mohamad has sued current Prime Minister Anwar Ibrahim for making, quote, slanderous claims about him during a speech in March. 
According to Mahathir, Anwar alluded to financial misconduct from a politician who had been in power for 22 years and 22 months, a pretty undeniable jab referring to Mahathir's tenure as premier. Alden, can you tell us more about the circumstances behind this $33.8 million lawsuit? Well, Karen, the two leaders have had a long history of enmity. Anwar himself has filed lawsuits against Mahathir before, and high-profile politicians in Malaysia actually face civil defamation cases fairly often. Analysis from Time magazine show that every prime minister since 2009 has faced at least one complaint, often from a political opponent. Although the results of this most recent case aren't clear yet, Anwar has pointed to a unity government convention held over the weekend as proof that his government is stable, despite facing attacks from other parties. In other election news, the newest observer and soon-to-be member of ASEAN, Timor-Leste, is gearing up for parliamentary elections on May 21st. The election will likely be a showdown between two parties, the Revolutionary Front for an Independent East Timor, or Fatilin, and the National Congress for Timorese Reconstruction, or CNRT, although there are 17 total parties in the race. What are some key issues in these elections, Alden? This has been called a once-in-a-generation election because a large percentage of the electorate will be voting for the first time, and parties will likely roll out youth policies such as new job and trading opportunities. Given that delays in Timor-Leste's accession to ASEAN have been attributed to other member states' concerns about its lagging development, the new government's focus will likely be on growing the economy. Timor-Leste's dependence on its oil and gas revenue has been a major obstacle to sustainable development, and analysts have suggested that the, that the new government has a responsibility to diversify energy sources. Both political parties are campaigning on their ability to advance the Greater Sunrise Project, a joint venture to develop natural gas fields in the Timor Sea that has stalled due to disagreement over where the gas should be piped. The project is critical to address supply gaps after the recent decommission of Timor-Leste's main source of revenue, the Bayu-Undan oil and gas field. The project is also expected to require international investment, which could lead to greater engagement with larger economies like China, India, and the United States. Rounding out our headlines with a final election story, albeit a little more bleak. Earlier this week, Cambodian electoral authorities disqualified the main opposition candlelight party from contesting parliamentary elections in July, claiming it failed to provide the proper registration documents. The candlelight party's predecessor, the CNRP, was dissolved in 2017 which resulted in the ruling Cambodia People's Party winning all seats in the National Assembly. This newest disqualification means Prime Minister Hun Sen will be running virtually uncontested for the second election in a row. Party leaders told international media that they would appeal against the decision in the Constitutional Court. Although frustrating for the opposition, this move was not entirely unexpected. The ruling Cambodia People's Party has steadily been suppressing its opponents in recent months, including by physically assaulting opposition members, shutting down one of the country's last independent news outlets, and convicting opposition members of treason. And those are the headlines. Thanks for stopping by, Alden. Thanks again for having me, Karen. Up next, Greg and Alina's interview with Ken Lohatepanon on the opposition landslide in Thailand over the weekend. Welcome back. I'm Gregory Poling, director of the Southeast Asia program at CSIS, joined as always by Alina Noor of the Carnegie Endowment. Howdy, Alina. Hello again. And today we're here to talk about the recent elections in Thailand with Ken Lohatepanon. Ken is a PhD student at the University of Michigan in the political science department and a frequent columnist with the Thai Inquirer. And he's here to talk to us about the results of this weekend's stunning election. At least for those who were putting too much faith in the pre-election polls out of Bangkok. So uh, by way of introduction for those who were maybe focused on the Turkish polls for some reason this weekend, on May 14th, Thailand went to the polls, the first national election since 2019. 
The Election Commission town says it was the highest level of voter turnout in Thai history. And the big winners appear to be the upstart Move Forward Party, the successor to the Future Forward Party that was famously disqualified after 2019. And what makes that a big upset is that most of the pre-election polls suggested that we were headed for a landslide by the Pua Thai Party. Um, Pua Thai, of course, is the party, the successor party to Thai Rak Thai, a former Prime Minister Thaksin Shinawa, which has won in one form or another every election since 2001. So I, I guess, uh, Ken, where I want to start is what happened? I know the polls started to move toward the end, but how do we explain uh, Puatai's rather poor showing? Oh, hello, everybody. I'm delighted to be on this podcast today. I think that Puatai's result was extremely unexpected by virtually anybody in the political spectrum, not least with Puatai themselves. And I think that we can attribute Puatai's poor showing to probably two key factors. The first is the demographic reason. The newer generation of Thais have almost uniformly become pro-move forward. They want to see deeper structural reforms than Pua Thai has been willing to propose. And move forward, they, they won a sizable number of votes in 2019, and they managed to hold and retain and even expand on the youth demographic this time around. And I think that secondly, the reason that Puatai has performed so poorly in this election is simply because of their ambiguous stance on whether or not they wanted to form a partnership with conservative parties. So Puatai's fans are probably going to say that I'm not necessarily being fair, that Puatai has actually been pretty clear. But in you know the public perception, the fact that Puatai initially refused to roll out a coalition deal with the Palampashart party, which was the uh, the previous ruling party that had backed Prayut for prime minister and is now being led by Deputy Prime Minister Prayut Wongsawan. The fact that Puatai wouldn't rule out such a partnership, I think, hurt their image as, a, as an anti-regime party. And it really led people to, uh, to flow towards move forward. Another reason I think that we could used to explain why Puyatai fared not as well as they expected is because of the perception that Puyatai was still moving, was still working for Thaksin's interests. Just a few days before the election, Thaksin, who still retains a great deal of influence over Puyatai, had tweeted about coming home. And I think that that played a role in driving people both to move forward and the conservative voters into backing Puyat for another term. So Ken, I understand that you're back in Bangkok. And I just want to get to the atmospherics a little because elections are always exciting or not in some places. But I just wanted to get your sense of how it was like because we're recording this a couple of days after um, the elections. Were you out and about? Uh, what was the feeling like? So I got back to Bangkok just a couple of days before the polls. But something that I did get to do was I did get to go up to Northern Thailand to do some pre-election field work. And it was very interesting to see how I went to a province that was dominated by the Plumpershart party and the, you know, the, the current ruling party. And even there, where people said that they would vote for the constituency MP that was being feuded by Plumpershart, it was still very clear that there was a lot of anti Brayut sentiment that was going around. A lot of people were saying even though they were going to vote constituency for Palambashar, they were going to vote Puatai or move forward in the the party list. And that's exactly what transpired in many places, where even in places where Palambashar did win, 
the constituency ballot, people casted their second ballot for Pretire Move Forward. It was the anti-regime atmosphere was extremely clear. So again, let, let's walk people through some of the math because courtesy of the military's very stacked constitution, Thailand has a pretty complicated system for selecting the PM from this point, right? So the the elections two days ago from the time we were recording, the elections on the 14th were for the 500 uh, lower house seats in the parliament, uh, most of which are constituency, but then there's also the party list. But there's also the 250 seat Senate, the, the upper house, and a combined majority of the two is required to select the PM, which means you need 376 votes to make the PM. Even though Move Forward and Puatai both had a pretty good day on the 14th and won the largest shares of seats, even combined, and with their three smaller partners that they say they're going to bring into coalition, that still barely gets them over 300 seats. So they need to find 70 more seats somewhere, either from the Senate which has been handpicked by the conservative establishment, the military and the palace, or they've got to convince some other conservative parties who are part of the ruling military dominated coalition to cross lines. How do they do that? So this is where it gets tricky for move forward. They have won a mandate, but in the Thai political system that's been instated after the 2017 constitution was promulgated, a democratic mandate doesn't translate to forming a government. You need to get through the 250 strong Senate first. And I think there are two routes that they could get to 376, the minimum number of votes in parliament that Pita Linterandrat, the Ruford party leader, needs to get in order to become prime minister. The first route is through convincing, as you said, the former coalition parties. The, For example, the Pumjai Thai party, which has 70 seats in parliament. If Pita got Pumjai Thai on board, that would instantly put him over the line and would allow him to become prime minister. However, at this point, Pita has said that he's not willing to invite Pumjai Thai to join the coalition. And indeed, it's unclear whether or not any of the conservative parties would be willing to vote for Pita simply because Move Forward had promised that they would seek to amend the Lasse Majeste law, the law on royal defamation, and all the conservative parties had, camp- had promised their voters that they would not touch this law. So they would be breaking their own election pledge by voting for Pita. So as of now, it's not clear whether or not Pita can actually persuade any of the other lower house parties to vote for him. The other route would be to try to persuade the senators to vote for Pita. And as we know, in 2019, the entire Senate voted for Brut. So it's a tall order to try to convince the senators to switch sides and vote for Pita as prime minister. A couple of them have said that they would be willing to abstain and they would not want to play a role in selecting the next prime minister. But the problem here is that, according to the constitution, an abstention is not enough. A senator has to actively vote for Pita and Pita has to get 376, that magic number, in order to become prime minister. And whether or not anybody in the upper house is going to actually you know, go, go out and bat for Pita is still a very open question. A number of senators have already come out and said that they're not going to vote for Pita because they don't agree with his stance on royal reform. And indeed, there was a senator who actually came out and said he would rather vote for the Puyatai prime minister candidate, Pathan Tan Shinobat, who is Thaksin's daughter, over Pita. So it's still a very, very murky road ahead for Pita and whether or not he's actually going to be able to come, become prime minister. Sounds really messy, um, but it also 
I think speaks to the power of uh, the voters. I just wonder, though, how frustrating would it be for those who voted for Move Forward if the party's manifesto were to be hampered by compromises to get Move Forward at 376 or over that, if you were to have to cut you know, different deals with different parties or different senators? I think that Move Forward's supporters would be extremely frustrated. I mean, you know, if you think about Move Forward, they're known for ideological purity, for standing on their principles, for not compromising. But again, they've never actually been in government before. And once you're, you're trying to get into government and you have to start cutting deals, that's when you have to start compromising. And I think that for Move Forward supporters, they're probably not going to like it when Pita, if Pita has to start cutting these deals. For now, Pita is standing his ground. He said he's not going to, uh, to water down his demands for broad defamation law reform. He said that he's going to continue to push move forward's policies. So whether or not Pita actually gets there, actually gets to compromising with the other parties on these key issues remained unclear. I mean, I guess my question is, what does this mean for domestic stability in Thailand? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that there are, there's two ways to look at this. The first one is, if Pita becomes prime minister by compromising with the conservative parties or with the Senate and waters down his demands, I don't think there would be too much social instability simply because in the end, Pita gets to form a government, move forward, gets in power. It's just that their popularity among their base might drop a bit. And, but then again, I think that's natural for any party in government to you know, have their honeymoon period end at some point. But on the other hand, if Pita's efforts to form a government don't succeed and in the end we get an alternative coalition that doesn't include the Move Forward Party, I think that's when we might actually get to see some street protests, some vocal demands from Move Forward supporters that this doesn't reflect the democratic will of the people. And that's when things will get even messier, I think. So the last time we saw the future forward, the, the process to move forward, um, have some successes, not a majority, but some successes in the 2019 elections. The then leader was disqualified. Eventually, the party was disbanded, and they had to form this, this successor. The election commission has 60 days to certify the results. That's 60 days to engage in shenanigans to overturn the the results of, of the election. I, I know a lot of the, the chatter before, and of course, after given the history of, of Thai politics, has been on the role of the military should we maybe be a little more worried about the role of the judiciary in trying to engineer a government that doesn't get dominated by move forward? You're right that I would be much more inclined to think that there might be a judicial intervention rather than a military intervention. And the reason that I think that is because a military intervention hasn't traditionally occurred so early in in a government's term. For example, the military coup in 2006 happened in Thaksin's second term. It was only after, you know, street protests had emerged against Thaksin when corruption cases were bidding against him that the military felt sufficiently empowered to remove Thaksin from power. With Jinglok in 2014, it was the same. When the amnesty bill that the Putai government tried to ram through parliament was a trigger point that allowed protests to emerge and then the military to come in saying they needed to enforce social stability. So I don't think that a military coup is on the cards quite yet. 
As for a judicial intervention, I think that's possibly much more likely. The first thing that we could see is that we could actually see Pita himself disqualified as MP. He's accused of holding shares in a media company that's now defunct. And while for most listeners, that might sound like a strange thing to disqualify uh, a sitting MP for. But in, according to the current election laws, that's a, an MP is not allowed to hold shares in a media company. So we'll see where that case goes. And as he said in 2020, the future Ford party was dissolved. And that was the trigger point, actually, for the massive protests that followed the dissolution of the future Ford party. So one of the big takeaways for me watching it from, from Washington was the almost complete sweep of Bangkok by Move Forward. They won every constituency except one in, in the capital. But maybe the underreported story is that they also made inroads throughout the country. I mean, this was supposed to be, if, if we look at, at the last election cycle and at the Bangkok governor's race, the, the presumption was that Bangkok had changed, but the rest of the country was still divided into you know regional fiefdoms for Puatai and, and Palang Pracharat and Democrat. And that doesn't seem to have happened. So what happened with this shift in voting behavior out in the countryside? So first with Bangkok, you know, Bangkok is notoriously swingy. It's in the U.S., I think you would, you would call Bangkok a swing state. <laughs> Bangkok used to be traditionally very pro-Democrat, and the Democrats experienced a complete wipeout in 2019. And Pua Thai got, you know, and Future Forward divided seats between them. And this time, as you said, Bangkok has gone almost completely orange. Pua Thai only won one constituency, which is exactly kind of a crazy thing to think about. As for the, the promises, I think... In Thailand, we like to say that there's something called the Banyai, the big houses, the local families that dominate different provinces. They do up patronage. They're just extremely dominant in all the local fiefdoms, fiefdoms that, they, that they hold. And now what we're seeing this time around is that just being you know, a so-called big house, just you know, doing all this constituency work, all this local support is not enough. You also need to be ideological to stand for something to have principles in order to win the vote of the younger generation. And we saw this all over the country. In Supanburi, which is still the stronghold of the Chathai Patana Party, which is led by the son of a former prime minister from Supanburi and is still beloved in that province, the party still won the constituency seats. But the party list vote went to move forward. So clearly, even there, something has changed. In Taksin's home city of Chiang Mai, Move forward one in Nakhodachisima, a city that used to be dominated by the Chapatana party. Move forward one and Puetai won a couple of seats as well. Even in the south that used to be the Democrats stronghold, move forward quite a few number of seats and they won on the party list vote in several provinces as well. So things have changed. Patronage is no longer enough. All right, Ken. So if we can zoom out a little to what the Thai elections, as uncertain as they are right now, uh, in terms of results, means for Thailand's relationship with the region, um, ASEAN, and its alliance with the United States. I guess a lot hinges on who comes out as victor in all these negotiations behind the scenes. But what's your sense of whether this will change Thailand's relationship with ASEAN and I guess more urgently what it means for Thailand's role in the Myanmar crisis. And I'm sure Greg's dying to know what it means for the Thai-US alliance. 
I think that a move forward government would lead to quite a big reorientation in Thailand's foreign policy. So for the past couple of years, Prayut and his government has pursued a classic, you know, bamboo bedding in the wind foreign policy, as we Thais like to call it, balancing between China and the U.S., although some will, be cri- will criticize and say that Thailand has leaned more towards China than in the U.S. during the brief years, owing to the fact that he came to power due to a military coup, and the West shunned him for most of his early years. But Thailand has, in the past couple of years, tried to be non-confrontational when it comes to the world stage. It abstained on a number of UN resolutions regarding Russia's aggression in Ukraine, for example, and on Myanmar, it has been, it notably has acted, you know, outside of the ASEAN consensus, engaging more with the Myanmar military regime than any other ASEAN state has done. But Pitha and Move Forward has always been quite different in terms of how they approach foreign policy. I think that they were probably the only major party in Thailand that issued, you know, strong condemnations of the, coup, the military coup in Myanmar. Pitha has been very clear in his recent press conference that Thailand is that under his government, Thailand is not going to allow itself to stand by during, you know, in watching Russia's aggression in Ukraine. So I think that we can definitely expect a more pro-Western, more orientation, a more more actions to defend the uh, rules-based international order. That's definitely something we're going to probably see from Pita that we didn't see from the Brute government. And in addition, Pita isn't hampered by the same baggage that Prayut had. He is not. He didn't come to power in a military coup. The government doesn't have to spend so much time, you know, justifying or defending itself on the world stage. So Thailand foreign policy will definitely see a big shift. Ken, on on the question of the U.S. alliance, I mean, you know, practically most of the cooperation has gone apace. We've we've normalized the military cooperation that was suspended after the 2014 coup, and whether it's you know Cobra Gold or the law enforcement cooperation, et cetera, everything moves along fine. But at the strategic level, um, it's clear that Thailand aligns with the U.S. far less than a lot of non-allies in the region even, which has been a matter of great concern for the Biden administration. We know where Prayut stood on these issues, and I suppose we know where senior military leadership around him stood. We don't have a lot of data, though, on where the average Thai citizen stands and where the, you know, the average Pua Thai or move forward voter actually stands on issues around U.S.-China competition. Any insights on kind of what, you know, what the constituency who would bring Pita to power actually thinks about these issues? This is a very interesting question because, as you said, we just don't have that much data on what Thai voters think. Foreign policy was barely an issue at all during the election campaign. And so this wasn't something that, you know, we got to see party leaders debate very much. And we didn't get to see a lot of commentary from ordinary citizens about what they wanted to see in terms of how Thailand engages in the world stage, which is a shame. But I would suspect that the average Pua Thai move forward voter is definitely more pro-Western than, say, the average voter for the United Thai Nation Party or the Plumper Shark Party. There's always been a big, you know, claims on the conservative side that the U.S. is somehow intervening in Thailand's affairs. And I don't think that's something that we see very much on the more progressive, more liberal side of the equation. So I don't think that there's that same anti-Western sentiment that we would see among supporters of move forward. 
But whether or not they have a clear opinion on where Thailand should stand, you know, versus the uh, Western U.S.-China competition is unclear. We do know that a lot of Move Forward supporters were supportive of the Mukti Alliance. In general, they're much more pro-democracy, pro-human rights. So my inclination is to think that they would favor the U.S. side over China. But without more data, we can't say for certain. Well, uh, Ken, that's all the time we have to talk about this now. Something tells me that over the next 60 days, we're going to find an opportunity to talk about Thailand again as we see how the coalitions actually form. But for now, thank you so much uh, for helping us make sense of, of the pre-seismic results on the 14th. Uh, Alina, thank you as always. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Until next time, uh, we'll see you later. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org, and we'll be sure to answer any burning questions you may have. Do us a favor and subscribe, and give us a rating on Spotify or Google Podcasts, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends about us. Before we close, I am also very excited to announce the launch of a new mini podcast series next Thursday, May 25th, called Pacific Waves. Every month on a Thursday, we'll highlight some key news stories related to the Pacific Islands and discuss their significance for those countries and the United States foreign policy. Polynesia, Melanesia, Micronesia, we'll cover them all. So join us next Thursday, where we'll be looking at President Biden's canceled trip to Papua New Guinea. Marla Hiller is our producer, and our interns are Stephen Vo and Margaret Lin. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Alina Noor. My name is Karen Lee. And I'm Alden Hartopo. And we'll see you in two weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.